regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Datacast. And today, I have the pleasure to speak with Michelle LaRocca. Michelle is a research scientist and a full-stack engineer. He works as a consultant, creating large-scale web applications and machine learning infrastructure after gaining invaluable experience at Twitter, Microsoft, and Apple. And he also works on applied research both in academia and in industry. His work and interests focus on graphs, optimization algorithms, genetic algorithms, machine learning, and quantum computing. So yeah, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I want to start out talking about your educational background. I saw that you got a master's degree in computer science from the Università di Catania back in the early 2000s. So can you you know, just describe a little about your academic experience there and uh, especially also your thesis work called uh, Evolutionary Randomized Graph and Better? Yeah, right. I started with um, computer science uh, class in 1998. Actually, that makes me feel quite old, <laughs> saying it out loud. And I got my degree in 2003. I remember I spent, I mean, several months before the end of um, high school deciding between a computer science and software engineer course. In Italy, they were different and they depended on different areas, one from engineering and one from mathematics. And in the end, I chose computer science and I chose to move to Catania, which is one of the biggest towns, one of the biggest cities in Sicily, but close to my hometown. The level of uh, teaching and of the course was... uh, Imagine was very high for computer science. Uh, it was, and I think it is still one of the best places in Italy where you can study. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, to see uh, when I started on my first year, I immediately started studying uh, Java and functional programming because we had a new professor joining from, I, I believe it was in Den- was teaching in Denmark before. So I was introduced to Haskell and Java uh, quite early in my college, but the next year, like as a sophomore, I started studying algorithms, and then, like as you can imagine, probably I was uh, immediately in love with this uh, with this topic, with this area. I was, again, I was very lucky to have wonderful teachers back in college. It was a five years degree, so it, uh, back then you didn't have the choice to start with a bachelor degree and then take a master's degree. In Italy you had to take a five years course, you would get a master's degree at the end. So it was like a lot, a lot of commitment. It, it was a long, long path. 
but uh, it was very rewarding. I think that one of the main things I learned was to have a scientific mindset and to to reason about things and to learn about m many different topics, not just the basics, you know, to get a job or to, to do some, some development. On the other end, perhaps one flaw was the, back then was the a certain lack of practical experience. This was corrected, this was changed a few years after I started with the introduction of mandatory traineeship. Back then, it was not yet like that. And it was compared to, to other countries, perhaps it was uh, a disadvantage because students from other countries got a, a lot more experience. Uh, overall, I, I was focusing on my, well, there, there were a lot of topics to study. There was a lot of classes to take uh, in these five years. I, I think like 25 classes, 25 one year long classes. I focused mainly on uh, algorithms and on AI. AI was actually my major and the thesis I worked on was about graphs, of course, embedding graphs in the plane. So, for example, drawing graphs on your computer screen, doing that automatically using optimization algorithms. And in particular, on my thesis, I use uh, genetic algorithms, as I also described briefly other evolutionary algorithms to, that could be used to get similar results. Thanks a lot for sharing your experience back in college and a little bit about you know, the, the type of work that you work on your thesis. And yeah, we'll be sure to touch by on, on genetic algorithms later on in our conversation. In the next seven years, also after finishing college, you work as a web developer across a variety of places in Europe. So can you uh, comment on you know, this career phase of yours? So after I graduated in 2003, the first real experience I got was actually working as a trainee at the European Commission in the press department, of course, in the IT team. That was like quite nice. It was an invaluable experience, really. Also because like for the first time I was on my own, I was broad, working abroad when you become more independent because I, in the end, that uh, college was close to home for me. I also became financially independent. It was such a great experience because trainees came from all over Europe and someone even from outside Europe, uh, a few people from India, Japan or Africa. Starting at this level in this kind of organization, it was at the same time a blessing. You could even say it was a little bit of a curse. It was a blessing because it was like such a great place, such a good team. I learned a lot from very talented people and um, I had the chance to meet a lot of people. It was a curse because when you start so high, like you set the bar so high that it's like it's brutal going back to reality. In the end, I was not... I had very little experience. I was just junior. So after the traineeship ended, I went back to Italy. It was hard to find something at the same level in Brussels where I did the traineeship because I had less experience as a, compared to candidates from other countries, as I said, because like of the way it was the academia in Italy back then the universities. So we didn't get uh, working experience and some experience back then. And in Italy, there were not such nice companies like 
not companies at the same level, especially in the south of Italy. They were like smaller and they had a different culture. You start from at very high level and then you have to struggle a little bit to adapt, especially when you're junior years. But anyway, back then in Italy, I started working as a contractor, as a web developer, mostly working on Flash Action Scripts uh, for a couple of years. And then uh, also teaching basic computer science in schools, also training, training teachers. And then, if I'm not mistaken, in 2007, I started working in the game industry for a bit in Milan on games like Superbikes or MotoGP simulations. It was like quite a change, also change of start working on C++ for the first time as a professional, um, but also it was quite nice. From 2010 to 2014, you work as a software engineer at INPS, which is a government-owned company that now handles most of the public related data of Italian citizens. So what were some of the projects that you were involved with there? So I was working on the in an area that was handling retirement pensions. Most of the work I did there was about this. The, the way this was handled was using COBOL, IBM DB2 and mainframes basically. It was like old school computer science rather old school uh, software engineering was the first time I, was, I learned COBOL and it was a completely different way of handling and designing systems with respect to what I was used. Like I was mostly used to web development and this was quite a change as you can imagine. It's quite an experience. <laughs> I think now it, they are like re-engineering these systems to also use Java and you know, you know making them more modern. Uh, but sure, back then it was something challenging. So between 2013 and 2014, you uh, spent some time working as a data visualization engineer at a machine learning on-demand startup called SweepIQ. In particular, you um, have created a data visualization library that allows the inclusion of dynamic charts in HTML pages with just a few JavaScript lines. So can you discuss this library briefly? Yeah, I worked as a contractor for almost a year at Swift IQ. They were doing a really nice job. The startup, well, back then it was a startup. Now it has been acquired last year. Anyway, like they were doing a terrific job for machine learning on demand. It was one of the first startups 2013, or at least one of the first I heard of that were offering machine learning on demand, and machine learning as a service for other companies. My work was mostly creating visualizations for this data that was gathered from the client. So we created uh, dashboards, summarizations, like or um, even like some one of the nicest one was a visualization for basically a recommendation system and showing correlations between products. I was mainly using well, it was mostly front end. I was using, of course, JavaScript with uh, this RegJS library. At some point, then the framework, like the, the internal library, was migrated to use Angular. So we also worked on adapting what we had uh, to the new framework. It was pretty good work for the for the time, and I was also using. Um, the point was having these visualization 
to be reusable on of course for different customers but also to be easily included in web pages so that you could compose like the best dashboard for a client using various pieces that you that were like blocks already like contained on their own and composable easily composable and angular was pretty good for this actually but i also was using at some point uh, reactive.js it's reactive javascript library somehow similar to facebook's react it was written by rich harris and like a very talented engineer that you probably know because he also created the svelte framework which is by the way a great framework for JavaScript and for enabling data visualization and very good performance. That also helped a lot to create that kind of content that was easily usable by customers, efficient, fast, and easily reusable and uh, adaptable to different customers. Yeah, I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing some of the details of those uh, JavaScript libraries that you use, as well as the functionality of the application. Between 2014 and 2016, you joined the Twitter's user service engineering team in Dublin as a full-stack software engineer. What are some of the major projects that you contributed to during your time at Twitter? Yeah, Twitter was my first experience in a very large top company. I learned a lot. I've grown a lot during my time there. As you said, I was working for the user services engineering team. Uh, The team was supporting user services agents, basically customer service. We were creating internal tools for them to handle all the requests from users that could go, you know, from problems connecting or also all the, when you report uh, some account, like an account or a tweet, and of course there are humans behind that that will have to also assess the situation and take action. And they use internal tools to be more proficient and to, to evaluate better each singular case. We were also handling the help center. We were maintaining it. Uh, we migrated it at some point uh, from Rails 3 to Rails 4. I don't mistake it. Most of my work was between these two things, like maintaining the old tools for the agents and creating new tools. At some point, I also created a, from scratch a tool from handling DMCA copyright violation claims. Mm-hmm. Probably the most interesting project I worked on in the last year I worked for Twitter was creating gold new pipeline for the to support uh, open verification. So you know, like the blue badge, uh, it used to be before 2016, it used to be like so only for VIPs. Then in 2016, it was this. Uh, it was open to everyone. Everyone could ask to get a blue badge, to get a verified account. And of course, a new system needed to be designed and implemented to handle the high volume of requests that was expected. And for this, like, we had to design a new system handling peak of millions of requests per day. It was like, quite challenging, especially because we had to do it in quite a short time, but it was super interesting especially the stress tests to, to make sure that the system was responding well. 
and was able to actually handle the volume that we uh, the volume of requests that we added that we were expecting that we had thought there would be also it was technically challenging because uh, we, the architecture that we were using for the app center could not uh, handle that much and uh, we had to adapt other tools that were mainly used for the backend like i don't know if you're familiar with finagal or finato that are two of the most important open source project for twitter and but they are mainly used as application servers and we also wanted to to serve uh, web content with them with uh, some version some modified version it was pretty nice right pretty crazy though thanks for sharing joyce for the twitter and you know really dig deep into that engineering challenge with that verification project after twitter between 2016 and 2018 you moved to zurich to work with microsoft contributing to some of the projects within microsoft dynamics and azure ml so what are some of the machine learning related projects that you were involved with microsoft i was working on the microsoft social engagement team which is a CRM that's, um, that allows uh, customers to make sense of all the social data that involves them. So a brand could use it to track down all the feedback that uh, customers put online about it. And also we also were providing um, tools to analyze the sentiment and intention of these uh, tweets, posts to more easily connect from a single place to across different social networks to all the customers and performing customer services more easily. Also, you, as you can imagine, also, yeah, the scale was quite large. Like it was not Twitter scale because of course, Twitter itself, the core handles hundreds of thousands for, of tweets per second in, in, in their peak, right? But um, it was still very, time-consuming and resource-consuming to gather data for all clients and uh, make sense of them. Especially when I joined, but across all the two years I worked there, I was handling the machine learning infrastructure, so the pipeline that that's used to keep different models, version them, keep an history for each customer of the trained model so that you can also roll back to um, an earlier model if the new version doesn't work as well. There is a lot of work connected in, you know, periodically training this model to perform some kind of online learning or I would say more mini batch than stochastic gradient descent to learn when, as soon as you get new data, after starting with the generic model, you want to tune it on, on your client as much as possible. And so I was doing this, which involved mostly working on Java, uh, Springs, and some Python code. But I was also working on machine learning tools, internal machine learning tools. I was focusing on clustering, implementing some algorithms, like some advanced algorithms like uh, optics or DBSCAN, but in a distributed context. So using course leveraging cloud infrastructure that Microsoft provides with Azure ML, but implementing these algorithms using a MapReduce-like computational model so that they can scale well and run on several nodes and on a lot of data. 
most of these uh, clustering algorithms allow you to break data in in shards and process them separately somehow. Besides that, I also was working on internal training, organizing ML machine learning workshops, teaching in internal machine learning classes. I also worked briefly on front-end helping. This was like actually a very rewarding project because it was making sure that our product could be used by people with different abilities. So people with uh, low vision, for example, or air impaired people. Making the product accessible for everyone was uh, very interesting and very rewarding in the end when we managed to, to meet the, the requirements. I see. Yeah, it seems like you uh, involved such a variety of initiatives at Microsoft, right? From building that infrastructure and to, to implementing some of their distributed clustering algorithms to doing internal training. So I'm sure that that is a fantastic experience to, to just learn about ML engineering in general. Yes, indeed. So after Microsoft, you worked for one year at Apple office in Zurich as a senior mm-hmm. applied research engineer. So how, how was your experience at Apple compared to Twitter and Microsoft? I can talk that much about Apple, as unfortunately, um, uh, but of course the experience quite intense. A lot of work, lots of interesting things to work, and a very talented team. It was compared to Twitter and Microsoft. Of course, it was different. Basically, it, it depends a lot on also on the team that you end up. That influences uh, very much who you work with and what you work on. My experience at Twitter was so great also because I was in this team working closely with a diverse workforce. Not everyone had an engineering background. The majority of uh, agents uh, didn't. Of course, there were people from all over the world. It was like very enriching, very good chance to learn about uh, other places and other people, other points of view in the end. And this, for me, it's one of the most important things. Like, But also, in general, t- Twitter was a very nice place to work. The level of the engineering team was great. And the Microsoft, also, also of course, the, the technical level was very high. The team felt like a family more than other places, maybe also because it stemmed from a local startup that was acquired by Microsoft some years before I joined. In general, the company was like, at least as Satya Nadella became CEO, I, I don't know about the time before, but at least since then, it was, the company was very careful about giving a good work-life balance to the employees and you could feel like it was a really nice place to work. And in particular, my team in Zurich, as I said, it, it felt like a family. Uh, Apple is a more it's a, it's a different culture, I would say. It's probably the closer to what you would imagine as a corporate company. Thanks for sort of differentiating between these different company culture or, or these big companies. Right now, you're currently in the process of finishing a technical book with Manning called Algorithms and Data Structures in Action. The book introduced a diverse range of algorithms used in web application, system programming, and data manipulation. What has been the biggest challenge that you encountered during the writing process thus far? For sure, I wasn't uh, imagining when I started that it would take me more than four years, actually almost five years, to finish this book. It's very time-consuming, so it's even a bigger effort than I could ever imagine. 
probably also because the book ended up to be longer than I expected. There was a, a lot that I had to study and learn to describe the topics that I wanted to talk about uh, in the best way possible. There was a lot of material to study to make sure that what I knew uh, was actually the right thing and the most up-to-date uh, take on problems. Uh, also, I would say there was some learning how to teach these things. Because one thing is using the, an algorithm or a data structure. And uh, another thing is explaining it, especially in detail. And also because the goal was making these easily digestible to a wide audience, right? So we wanted to try to explain things very well in simple terms, uh, but also providing the chance for interested readers to go deeper and learn more details or perhaps the, the idea is that like a reader can stop at the surface and learn how to use a data structure or maybe if they are interested they can even further implementing advanced variants perhaps even understanding the math behind some of these data structures which is not always that simple and you know teaching these writing it writing it down it's harder than than you think like uh, harder than i thought at least uh, it takes a considerable effort yeah i see so you have to learn some of these algorithms and data structure on your own for the one that you're not intimately familiar with and the process of writing it down and explaining them to the potential readers is also quite difficult right yes yes it's uh, it's difficult especially to to make sure that um, For example, if you understand something and you explain it, you have some kind of bias, right? Because you already know you, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But maybe a reader that doesn't have your background or the same background will struggle with it. So making sure that you are at the same time thorough and uh, clear enough, it's quite challenging. I see. I got a chance to briefly look through the table of contents of the books and... You know, for the next like, couple of questions, I want to dig deeper into some of this data structure that you introduced in the book. The book is basically being categorized into three different parts. Part one, expand on some of the basic data structure and introduce some of the more advanced ones, including things like the array hips, randomized trips, bloom filters, destroy sets, tries and radix trees, and cages. Can you just briefly explain some of this data structure for the one who, who, who not familiar with them, what was the potential use case for them? Sure. So part one is uh, mostly about describing data structures that allow to implement basic problems, but in a more efficient way. For example, uh, DRIPs are a special case of binary heaps. A heap is a data structure that It's a tree-like structure that is uh, mostly used to handle priorities. So, for example, if you have a certain set of tasks and you want to tackle them in order of priority from the highest priority to the lowest, some version of a heap is uh, probably the, the best choice. Um, especially, of course, this set of items is dynamic, so it can change in time while you process it. 
And DREPs are like expand on binary apes. So the tree, instead of as having just two children, can have any number of children. We use this also as an introduction to the way that we will describe things in the book. You see, like we show that by using a different branching factors, a different number of children in the tree, you can improve performance. We actually show it on a real-world application like Huffman coding at the end of this chapter. Trips instead are, um, let's say, pretty nice, not too well known, I would say, that a structure that uh, basically its goal is uh, having balanced binary search trees by using uh, randomization. It's uh, A trip is uh, an hybrid between a binary search tree and a heap. The, the key is that, uh, of course, you cannot have both the binary search tree and the heap on, on the same data, but uh, by using two different sets, one of which is a set of uh, the set of keys that you want to store in the tree, and the other one is a set of random numbers, you can obtain a balanced search tree, which means that you can improve the performance of your search in, in the tree. And this can be used in any context where you need a, like some dictionary where the read-write ratio is fairly skewed towards reads, so you have many queries and that you can perform in logarithmic time with a binary search tree. After that, we talk about Bloom filters. This is a data structure that implements the abstract data structure. So a dictionary is a data structure where you can store items by key. So you have usually key value pairs and you can store the items by key and you want to both read and write things as quickly as possible. Hash tables provide this and hash sets as well, but Bloom filters do the same thing, allowing you though, to save memory. So to reduce the space needed to store the same keys. And Bloom filters themselves are like the basic version is using is used for hash sets, for sets in general, but they can use it for full dictionary, like there is a variant that can be used for uh, key value store. There need to be a price, there is no free lunch, you know, is that you have, with Bloom filters, you have um, a small ratio of uh, false positives, which means that uh, sometimes you look in the set and it says that you have stored an item, you have already seen an item, but you actually have not. This is fine in many applications where the important thing is that you don't have uh, false negatives, for example. They are really used a lot in routers, crawlers, on uh, every time that you need to check if uh, there is something that uh, you have already seen. Even in, you know, caches, you don't want to store something in a CDN if it's been requested only once in, in a long time. With Bloom filters, you can the first time just store a, a hash of it. And if you see that it's something that the second time it's requested, it's um, you see that you had already seen it recently, then you can actually take uh, the burden of storing it on the, on the cache. There is a lot in this part. There are these joint sets that uh, are used to keep track of how items, items are grouped. 
and they are used a lot in more advanced algorithms like clustering, minimum spanning trees, connected components for graphs. And then there are later in the next chapter that we talk about tries, a tree-like structure that's used for efficient string search and for prefix suffix search. It stores strings way more efficiently than a binary search tree because if you are storing a dictionary, many words will have they will, they will have prefixes in common, and uh, with a try, you don't store each prefix multiple times; you just store them one. So it's uh, really space efficient. Finally, the last chapter in this section talks about caches, and uh, it builds on what it was discussed before during in, in the previous chapters and well you know caches are ubiquitous in our work especially on web architectures you can find them in every tire of the of web paths and uh, you can find them in in front of uh, web server application servers to reduce the load and don't avoid computing uh, things multiple times you can find on web internet nodes to avoid retransmitting stuff uh, all, all the way. You can like see the ends are basically caches, but they are also very important for uh, databases because databases, especially SQL databases, uh, I would say um, they have a limited throughput. They can support only a limited number of requests per second. And if you let all your requests go directly to the database, the database would be likely on fire uh, after a bit while putting a cache in front of it you reduce the read requests and this also helps you if you have locks on the database so if the database is locked for write set the cost of having slightly stale data but you save a lot um, of uh, db time and a lot of pain in the end avoiding crashes of your database and ultimately of your web application. I learned a lot about some of the more basic data structure like heaps and trees, but some of the stuff that you mentioned, definitely useful to, to learn about, to expand my knowledge. And uh, yeah, Thanks. be sure to include some of the description that you already mentioned into the final show notes so people can explore Bloom Futures and, and Catch and, and tries in, in more details. The second part of the book reveals some of the data structure to perform efficient multi-dimensional queries including various nearest neighbor search and clustering techniques. So what are some of the data structure and algorithms that you uh, brought up here? This part uh, focuses mostly on nearest network search and how you can use it. The main data structures that are described are KD trees, R trees and S plus trees. They are different variants of the same thing, basically Let's say KD3 is a way to partition efficiently the spatial data, so multidimensional data, and uh, query it uh, efficiently. If you think of a binary search tree, right, it's very good on unidimensional data. But if you try to expand it in the two dimensions, so on the plane, it doesn't work that well uh, because there is no clear dimension unless like you have a skewed data set, there is no clear dimension along which you can split the data in a way that then like you can have efficient search. The KD3 and 
R3, S3, they use a different approach. KD3s are like a, literally splitting the plane alternatively along two orthogonal directions. Uh, for simplicity, let's say one for time around the vertical direction and the second time along the uh, horizontal direction. And then again, at next level, it would be the vertical direction again. This way, it allows to cover the space on both directions, both along length and depth, we we'll say. Instead, our trees and S trees, they use geometrical shapes like retacorus and spheres, respectively, to partition these data in hierarchically contained areas. So. You start, for example, with the rectangle containing all the data, and then you create two rectangles that contain each, hopefully, half of the data, but let's say that cover each set subsection of the space. For S3, use spheres to do so. And why this is important? This is like so important because it allows you to perform nearest neighbor search uh, efficiently. There are not exact bounds for this, but you can assume that in the likest case where you manage to partition this, the data sets in homogeneously, like in equal sized chunks, you can get uh, logarithmic uh, or um, kind of logarithmic performance in, for the search somehow more like uh, the square root of n actually or big o of square root of n uh, for the generic case this in turn is used in so many applications it's uh, it's used in clustering for example so partitioning that is it making sense of unlabeled data it's used if you want to find the closest point to something if you, you can imagine a map where you don't have constraints about uh, routes uh, or streets and then you can find the, the closest uh, shop or the closest building to a point in the map but it's especially useful in databases it's been used to implement uh, multi-dimensional range queries for example i know that uh, postgresql and oracle at some point used kd trees for for this and you can, when I say multidimensional range queries, I say something like you have your back office with uh, all your employees and you want to search all employees between 30 and 60 years old that earns between 40 and $100,000 per year, for example. So you search uh, entries according to different criteria. And in this case, it's just bidimensional, but it can be like you can have thousand of dimensions. Well, it's also used, uh, KD3s and in general near neighbor search is also used to speed up simulations, for example, for particle interaction. It's quite important in the field. The last part of the book, look at graph embeddings, uh, gradient design, simulated annealing, and genetic algorithms. So yeah, could you mind giving a brief description for each of these algorithms? The graph embedding problem is the one my master thesis was about. So you have a graph and you want to draw it nicely on the screen, but not just that. It's especially relevant, for example, in PCI boards, for example, especially because you don't want copper wires to cross. There are algorithms that allow you to either draw a graph in the plane or on a board without having edges crossing. Unfortunately, not 
for all graphs, it's possible to avoid collisions, edge collisions, but in that case, you can always try to minimize the number of uh, intersections. This was used as an introductory problem in this part, and then it was solved using different techniques particularly the ones you mentioned. But also we describe other graph algorithms that are quite relevant for software engineering and in general for the internet stack, like probably heard of Dijkstra algorithm. Anyway, like you want to find this shortest spot uh, in a graph. The, this is used a lot in uh, routing. So when uh, you have to route some data packets to internet nodes, uh, each, each node uses, well, either Dijkstra's or more likely Belmont-Ford algorithm to find the best route to that reduces the latency of the packet. Problems like uh, graph embedding are difficult to solve in terms of resources. They are NP-hard problem and means that there is no efficient deterministic algorithm that solves generic instance of this problem. And so one way to deal with this is to use optimization algorithms. Optimization algorithms are like heuristics. They find uh, uh, near optimal solutions. They can't guarantee that they will find the best possible solution, but many of these algorithms can, on average, provide a solution that is quite close uh, to the best possible, if not the best possible. The way these algorithms work is that they need the problem to be described in terms of a cost function. It tells you how much a given solution costs, how much resources, for example, you need to use a given solution. You can imagine these two dimensions, for example, like having a 2D surface with hills and valleys. And an optimization algorithm tries to get to the deepest valley that is the point of minimal cost in the function, the cost function landscape. By doing this, the, you can find the solution with the smallest cost. There are different approaches to the gradient descent is one. Uh, it's a deterministic algorithm. It means it uh, gives you always the same answer if you apply it on the same cost function starting from the same point. And it's quite fast because uh, it's literally designed to take the fastest route to the valley. The problem is that you don't always have a single valley in the cost function landscape and this algorithm tends to be stuck in local minimum. Why is that? Why? Because you, you take the fastest route, but you only can have small steps, right? You, you take the locally fastest route to the valley. It's like you are on a, on the hilltop, on a hilltop, and you want to go to valley, but it's really foggy and you can only see a few meters in, around you. Uh, so, of course, you try to look at the terrain and see where it uh, degrades the fastest way, and you try to take that direction. It doesn't mean that you will get to the bottom of the valley. You might get stuck. If you only go downhill, you might get stuck in a local minimum. And that's what happens with gradient descent. There are workarounds for this, like using random restarts to start from different points so that you don't always start from the top of the same hill or from the same hill. Uh, but it's, um, so it's pretty susceptible to the place that you 
start from and uh, doesn't really work well with all cost functions and it, plus it needs the cost function to be differenti differentiable to work. This algorithm anyway it's really important because it's the most used algorithm probably must most used meta algorithm I'll say in machine learning because for example for linear regression or um, logistic regression especially you can guarantee that uh, the sum of square error function has a bowl shaped appearance like it's that it's bowl shaped and so there is like a single minimum point and then it's just a matter of thinning the parameters but gradient descent usually works very well uh, with it for other problems it Sometimes it can't even be applied if the cost function is not differentiable. For example, if you're running a robotic simulation or in reinforcement learning, it's also harder. It's, uh, you, have, you have to, to, to resort to different algorithms, especially algorithms using randomization. Simulated annealing and genetic algorithms, they are both stochastic algorithms. They use randomization heavily. The first one, simulated annealing, they takes inspiration from actually from metallurgy. From it simulates a system where the energy is progressively lowered, and in the end, it stabilizes to a good solution. It cannot give you guarantees about how it performs, but it has the advantage of gradient descent that it doesn't get stuck in local minima and doesn't need differentiability. Uh, although it's, uh, the problem is that it's often kind of slow and sometimes it also has problems with some cost functions where the local minimum are in like very narrow valleys. So the algorithm has problems making progress. Genetic algorithms in set, well, while they are still randomized stochastic, they take a completely different approach. It's, inspired by biology instead. They simulate a population with one individual per candidate solution. Actually, each solution is encoded in some genetic material in chromosome. And the uh, engine of the algorithm uses the same uh, me mechanics as uh, evolution, uh, like organisms evolution, and points to the like to the survival of the fetus. Basically, if we measure how individual like a solution is fit to the environment with some sort of cost function then with the evolution will lead to the best individual so the one for for which the cost is lowest to survive more than the others and to uh, mate more than the others so there will be more copies of this but at the same time the best advantage uh, of genetic algorithms with respect to uh, simulated annealing is that they keep somehow keeps memory of several possible solutions and combine them so they explore a wider area in parallel of the cause function landscape and uh, also they keep a high degree of diversity in the in their solutions pool and which is like a great thing uh, because it allows them they don't discard solutions that maybe don't look promising in the beginning, but with a small change, they can bring you to very efficient solutions. Very clear and meticulous description of these algorithms. I, I took like a, a computer science class like last year that looked really deep into some of these biologically inspired 
algorithms and you know we we study like simple analyzing and genetic algorithms and definitely in the context of grandison so definitely you know I resonate with what you just mentioned in, in terms of some of the, the disadvantage of of grandison and how some of these more nature inspired approach can um, because they stuck stuck as the nature they can address some of these challenges definitely great to to hear someone who's done you know research in this area like you to give more a little bit more context about how they're being actually used in the real world application yeah nice besides writing the book you are also working on js graph which is a lightweight library to model graphs run a graph algorithms and display them on screen so yeah can you talk about the process of writing this library the motivation was basically one of the topics that i enjoy most and that i worked on in the most during my career i had implemented uh, some of this stuff from my master thesis and about planar graphs and displaying graphs on the screen automatically in different languages from c++ to java during the years like long time ago and i wanted to you know create something that was like more portable more easily uh, usable and also i felt i couldn't find many uh, libraries uh, that were dealing with graphs problems in javascript so it it seemed like a good opportunity good niche to to provide some value and um, i wanted to work on, a, on an open source project for a long time so i took the plunge I can't always find enough time or there as much time as I would like to implement all I in this library all the algorithms I would like to implement but uh, I try to uh, you know make some progress each each month let's say at each week I try to keep track of what I want to accomplish and what I want to add and my main goal was having something easy that could uh, allow you to programmatically create a graph and display it on on your browser or well it's it supports svgs uh, svg so it can you can actually store it wherever you want and you can also export graphs in json it was challenging especially in the beginning to find the best design for this structure there are a number of design challenges with graphs if it like and if we have time we can talk about it but i had to you know go over my design in a few times before getting one that i was satisfied with and that is well for me actually now it's working pretty well it seems pretty easy my roadmap now is like having extending the library both with some algorithms that i haven't yet been able to to write down but also to expand it with a super layer that allows you to quickly describe in some easy dsl your a flowchart and then it automatically outputs an spg for your flowchart nicely drawn without the edges intersections in a pleasant way like with all notes of the flowchart seem like it more or less at the same distance not too far from each other so it can be read easily yeah definitely and i'll be sure to include the, the link to the github repo so it has a very detailed well documented readme with, with clear visualization of examples and um, a very detailed roadmap 
for the de- development of this library. So if any of the listeners are interested in do a pull request to contribute to the library, then they can reach out to you and find out about Yeah, if anybody is interested in contributing, it would be also great. You have had professional experience with three different programming languages, Python, Java, and JavaScript. Could you mind sharing one thing that you like and one thing that you dislike for each of them? Sure. I would say with quite an experience with programming languages, I was lucky enough also to use Scala, C++, Ruby, and then, as we said, even COBOL. But currently, my stack is mostly with these three languages and to restrict to those three. But we could say, like, I, I like Python because it's good, especially good for prototyping stuff fast. I like JavaScript because it's a language of the web, I would say. It's so easy to share a library or whatever you work on in a web browser and very good for visualizations, which was an area I'm, I was working on it a lot. And also JavaScript has had a lot of interesting features, like it was natively functional and it had closures when these were not included in other languages. For example, Java only included lambdas a few years ago. On the other end, Java is it's nice because it's strongly typed, so you get these uh, static analysis for free and uh, it's uh, less error-prone. It's also less error-prone than other languages like C++. You don't have to deal with all the pointers. The garbage collectors now are very well optimized, so you don't pay that much of a penalty on a general system, of course, for embedded systems. Java, I'd say negative thing, maybe it's a bit rigid about object-oriented because not everything can be represented as an object, right? And on these, for example, JavaScript was ahead of time because you could have functions and compose them. Well, I also like a lot of functional programming. Perhaps Scala is the best synthesis of these two aspects and Perhaps for this is one of my favorite languages. So my understanding is that at the moment you are also in the process of learning about quantum computing. So what are some of the concepts and applications within this domain that you are excited about at the moment? I hope quantum computing will make dramatic progress in, in the next few years. I definitely think that the moment we have general purpose quantum computers will not replace our classic computers, but they can be used for some problems to speed up as subcategories problems. Uh, then it will be like a dramatic change in what we can do for in many fields like chemistry, for example, or biology, as we have seen, but also like pure computer science. Now we are still in so-called NISC era. It's a noise intermediate scale quantum era because currently qubits are still very noisy, there are a lot of errors, and this means that many applications of quantum computing will require not noisy quantum bits. And so they are, to my understanding, they are still years away. There are also areas where we have advantages or we have results now. One of the things I'm more excited about is like quantum machine learning, I guess, but unfortunately it's one of the areas that will take time to kick in, to, to be able to compete with, uh, you know, it's hard to beat the classical models that are studied widely fine-tuned 
that perform incredibly well at the moment. So this is probably very in a very early stage, but I think that we, we will get there. Not sure how many years it will take, but it will be very interesting. As you know, I, I love algorithms, so I would be really excited about the next quantum algorithm. What's going to be the next grower's algorithm? What's going to be the next potentially game-changing quantum algorithm that's discovered? Can you share your thoughts regarding the tech community in um, Dublin, Zurich, and in Rome, which is some of the places that you work and you live? I mean, all of these places are between quite active and lovely communities. Zurich one is pretty active with, with a lot of meetups, especially on uh, Haskell and Scala, also functional programming. But in general, Dublin and Zurich, with respect to Rome, have the advantage of having, of hosting uh, big companies and a lot of startups. So it's easier to find, you know, top-level engineers. To there are larger communities. If you think about both Zurich and Dublin, there are thousands of employees of companies like uh, Google or Amazon. Well, Amazon is. I'm not sure Amazon is in Zurich, but anyway, like Google is. I'm not mistaken. Their European headquarters in Zurich, and they have thousands of engineers. In Rome, it's a bit more difficult, but there are also a few startups. I wish they were more supported in Italy. Right. Thanks for sharing those differences in terms of culture uh, and tech activity in these different countries. And uh, I would say probably Dublin is the most lively and most diverse of the three. Mm, I see. Yeah. So, Marshall, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment. Uh, I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, uh, and then we'd love to hear your answers. Number one, name three people in the machine learning engineering universe whose work you admire. Uh, it's, it's always hard to restrict to three, but I would say probably Andrew Yang. Well, he's working on so many things. He was working at Alibaba, if I'm not mistaken, for a while. Well, he created Coursera and he created the first machine learning course that I followed and where I really started enjoying this field and learning about it. A great teacher and makes even the most difficult concept easy to understand. The second one I was mentioning is probably Geoffrey Hinton because his work on backpropagation, not only his, and of course, you, they, they, his team is, was not the, f- the first to propose that approach, but I would say they perfected it. They helped increment its usage, its adoption, and more recently worked on capture networks. But probably even more than that, he like helped, he formed the generation of the uh, AI, of some of the AI, right? It's much like this group producer people that, that are changing the AI field now. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the, the last one, I'll say Francois Chollet. I really admire Keras. It's a great piece of code and great piece of machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew and Jeffington and Francois Chollet, great names in the community. Second question, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better engineering mindset? So, well, if I have to choose just one, 
I would say scalability rules by Abbott and Fisher. It's, um, I mean, it, for me, it was eye-opening about how to scale applications well, all the complexity and all the care that you have to put in all the layers and problems you can get stuck with. And it's uh, ultimately, it's uh, not just about scalability, it's also like about uh, people's skills, like monitoring your population, good engineering practices. I think it's something that everyone should treat. Everyone, well, not, not just working on web applications, even if you are working on software engineering. In general, there are principles that are valid across uh, many different areas in the whole software engineering spectrum. And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring machine learning and full stack engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? It's hard. Just one tweet. I don't know, maybe I could say something like, don't forget uh, you have to message the data before you train your model. Remember that correlation is not causation. And like, you know, stay away from validating your own hypothesis. Beware to that. I would say either Probably the second one. So yeah, brilliant. Uh, Marshall, I, I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So I enjoy you know, learning about your professional background, working in web apps and being a full stack engineer, your experience at Twitter, Microsoft and Apple, the deep dive and some of the detailed explanation of the concepts in your book, Algorithm into the Structures in Action, as well as your project JSGraph and some of the uh, different texts on the difference between programming language and even quantum computing. So I'll be sure to uh, include all the resources, your books, and GitHub repo into the show notes so people can have a chance to take a look at them and learn more about some of this concept and reach out if they have any further questions. Uh, so yeah, Marcello, I appreciate you spending time in the interview today and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, thank you. Thank you a lot again for inviting me. and It was uh, really great being on your show. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.